functional training to me actually just means a bias towards low ground exercise selection from a resistance training standpoint, like a low ground, lower body resistance training exercise to me would be like a rear foot elevated in a TRX suspension cable split squat Mm, versus a, a very high ground, lower body exercise would be a leg press. That was Pat Davidson, and you're listening to the Just Fly Performance Podcast. Today's podcast is brought to you by our longtime sponsor, simplyfaster.com. There's two items I'd like to talk to you about today that you can find in Simply Faster's online store. Whether you're a coach or an athlete, these are both things that you'll find highly useful as tools in your training toolbox. The first is blood flow restriction training methods. And after hearing about blood flow restriction training for years now, as well as the results that athletes are getting with it, especially in, for example, lactate sports like swimming, 100 meter freestyle, and not only hearing of that, but also seeing how much some swimmers had liked that type of training method, I knew I had to start trying it out myself. So I've been utilizing the airbands. I really enjoy it, both the feeling while I'm actually training with them, as well as seeing the visual result of spending time training with the methods and then the strength result. They've been a really cool training tool, and I would definitely recommend checking into Airbands. Simplyfaster.com also has Be Strong brand blood flow restriction. The second item is the VMAX Pro, and this is a new option for velocity-based training, barbell tracking. It provides valuable load-based data, including speed in all phases of a lift, and it delivers key metrics such as power, velocity, distance, as well as duration of effort. The VMAX Pro system measures any lift you can think of. It's portable, durable, and intuitive. You can check out these two items and much more at our sponsor, simplyfaster.com's online store. Let's get on to the show. Welcome to another episode of the podcast. Thanks for being here. Our guest today is Dr. Pat Davidson. Pat is a trainer and educator based out of New York City. He's the creator of the Rethinking the Big Patterns lecture series, is a former college professor, and is one of the most intelligent coaches I know in the world of fitness and human performance. As an athlete, Pat has an extensive training background, including time in strongman, mixed martial arts, as well as many types of weightlifting activities. Pat has been a guest on multiple prior episodes of this series, and I'm excited to have him back. On the show today, Pat will be sharing his thoughts on a lens of looking at athletes as well as training exercises that offers so much in terms of understanding how things fit with sport. And this will be on the level of things that are, as Pat calls it, high ground and low ground. So things that have a high interaction with the ground and solid objects, such as a football lineman, uh, like a strongman, a power lifter, lots of time in the ground and pushing around objects that don't deform easily, to more aerial athletes, athletes that spend very little time on the ground, like divers, or you could even look at like a high jumper deflecting themselves off the ground. And this gives us an interesting way of looking at not just the athletes and that spectrum of athletes, but also a training perspective, things that are happening in the weight room, the gym, bilateral training, single leg training, training that involves an element of balance or or being on skates, for example, or long-term development and having children do more aerial things. This gives us a really interesting perspective, and it's really cool to have someone who has such a mind for this type of ideology like Pat does. Finally, with the single leg and the weight room, Pat will also get into some single leg training uh, in depth, as well as ideas on mid-stance towards the end of the show, and it was so much fun to have him on. Lastly, just with some logistics, we will be hitting the ground running, so you'll be headed right into 
the meat and the potatoes right getting into that explanation of that categorization and we'll be rolling. So excited to get this to you. Let's get to episode 318. It's almost like too, maybe the more on the level, the more like singular output oriented your sport, like cross country running, right? Like, like that's a very repetitive sport versus others like bass. Maybe just, it just changes the, how you frame everything versus basketball or football or, you know, golf. (laughs) I mean, golf is really repetitive too, in a way, but you know what I'm saying? I just think it's interesting. I do. Yeah. I, I think that it really is very dependent on the number of, like, I think of like a sport like soccer, for instance, where there's so many things that you have to do in it, you know, from like level changing and interacting with the ball with your feet, interacting with the ball with your chest, with your head, you know, running forward, backpedaling, running laterally, like passing, kicking the ball really hard, kicking the ball really softly. It's like, how would you ever unpack that from a training standpoint? It's just like there's so much going on and quantifying it is damn near impossible. And you have to be really fast. You also have to have really good endurance. You have to have deceleration, acceleration in multiple directions. It's it's just like, whoa, there's this this thing is crazy. You know what I mean? Like and you have so many different body types that do well in it. It's just like a variability bomb in a sport like that versus something like the hundred meters. It's like, you got to do this one thing, but even inside the hundred meters, like it's, it's kind of like maybe a better one would be like the 60, you know what I mean? Like it's much more in the realm of uh, strength coming out of the blocks and accelerating. And then you don't even really need much in the way of endurance. It's like, you see, I think a little bit more of the same body in that sport versus you have even more different kinds of bodies to a degree in the hundred, but it's a, like you were saying, it's a little more singular from the perspective of task versus lots of different kinds of tasks in other sports. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. There's, I'm sure there's a lot of places we could go to that too. Like, you know, back in the gen pop world, team sport, you know, individual sport and lots of different routes and avenues, but I, I sure there's some commonalities there. you were kind of asking me, like, is there any particular topic that I, I want to get into or whatever? And, like, there is this one topic I've been really, like, formulating in my head that I do find to be, like, a very central concept that I, I really think is going to be, like, the next project I'm going to do is going to be based off of this. And it is, it's this term ground. And I look at, like, I'm, I'm starting to, in my mind, I really think there's something to this, like, classify sports based on high ground athletes, low ground athletes, classify exercises as high ground and low ground. And of course in between, but it it sort of starts with like the definition of ground would be anything external to your body that you're able to push against. And then ground itself can go from a very easily deformable object to a very high deformable object. And so the more stuff there is outside of you that you can push against and the less deformable that stuff is, the more ground is that is. And, um, you know, if I was to talk about very low ground athletes, the ones that come to my mind are like uh, half pipe skateboarders, snowboarders, Olympic divers, uh, aerial acrobats. Those are examples of like very low ground individuals. And then very high ground individuals, 
I, I think a power lifter is probably highest ground that I could possibly think of. But then like weightlifters, bodybuilders, and then lower than them, but still pretty high ground would be like interior linemen in football and super heavyweight wrestlers and sumo wrestlers would be super high ground. And then a lot of the sports that we kind of like are, are like really in between that. But if, if you look at the characteristics of very low ground athletes, very high ground athletes, they're very different from each other. Where very high ground athletes, the best of the best, seem to be individuals with very large amounts of body mass and particular hypertrophy. And they don't necessarily need to display the ability to turn or to tumble. And then on the other side, it's like low ground. It doesn't seem as though hypertrophy or body mass has any relevance to it. And in fact, might be a huge hindrance. And then the people that dominate in those areas are best able to turn their bodies and to tumble in space. Then in between, you'd have like sports like baseball, lacrosse, basketball, soccer, even like as I think about the 100 meters, I feel like is an instructive thing because it's changing in ground as it goes through the race where it starts off with more ground. I mean, and then it gradually decreases ground and even the physical qualities that present themselves as most important in the different phases change where absolute strength and probably muscular development is important for the blocks and for the first couple acceleration steps. And then those things don't matter as there's less ground contact time and more time in space. And then other things seem to matter way more after that point. And then, of course, like constructing exercises off of that, I, I think that I basically, in, in the Rethinking the Big Patterns model, without realizing it, the progressions are based off of actually just removing influences of ground to the person. Like things that I feel like add ground are constraints and references and RNT, you know, all the other load, all these sorts of big hitters, they just increase ground. and then. In that model, it basically strips away those things as the person progresses through exercise. But I, I started to kind of rethink a lot of that even and just think to myself, I probably should create just trajectories of exercises and say, hey, these are high ground exercises. These are low ground exercises. These are moderate ground exercises. If you're a high ground athlete, you only need to progress here and then just progressively overload quantitatively here. If you're a low ground athlete, you need to go deep and remove all these, these influences, and then you can train over here. And if you're moderate, you go to the middle level progressions. So it's something I've really been thinking about a lot. And, and I do know that you were planning on asking about like single leg exercises and stuff like that. And, and to me, and even like the stance that you're adopting adds or removes ground. Um, and so I just look at it like, your ability to, as ground goes away, it's your ability to actually, hand, like I used to, I was calling it previously like internal ground. Like how can you create your own internal ground? And that would be your fluids and your internal forces that you're able to redistribute into different areas and to create the right pressures to move off of. Because to me, it's like, I, I kept you know, like there's at least in the hypertrophy world, 
there's like this huge camp of like, you know, Hey, every exercise, the best way to hypertrophy muscles is to line up the angle of the fibers from attachment, like insertion to origin. Like we need to look at that angle of the fiber orientation and then like create your exercise so that it matches that. And I, I don't know. I just kept thinking like, I don't think that adds up, man. Like I've seen way too many gigantic bodybuilders have no idea about this concept do like some whack-ass exercises on some (laughs) whack-ass machines and they've gotten huge like i feel like there's too many examples of people that haven't fit that thought process that don't have a clue about this thought process that got jacked so i i started to think more about it from less about the moving pieces versus the non-moving pieces And like the main non-moving pieces in lifting weights is actually the equipment that you're using. And when it comes to the non-moving pieces, like during athletic display, it's kind of the stuff inside your body that you're trying to have not move because it's always the things that are not moving that you're moving off of. So rather than like focus too much on the things that are moving, like focus more on what's not moving. And that might mean the external objects. How many of those things do we have? Where are they located? What's their degree of deformation? And then what's inside of you? And how stiff is it? And how immovable is it? And if you're going to move really well in free space, it probably means that some parts of you are not moving really well and that they're, they are these fixed points that other things are able to move off of and to be able to create that degree of, of fluidity of movement from that place. So I really felt like that was something that I wanted to talk with you about because I felt like you were going to kind of like hear that and, and think that it might be a cool concept and possibly run with it. So, yeah, no, I'm glad you brought that up. I feel like that same kind of dichotomy or that spectrum of things it probably fits a little bit with, you know, the compressive and expansive type thing. Like the more ground-based you are, the more you interact with the ground, the more it probably values it. It's valued to have a level of compressiveness to your body to be able to be a little bit more immobile, <laughs> respectively. Versus if I'm doing like 1080s on a skateboard, like I need to have a lot of degrees of freedom and in the air. So it's like you're almost adding that extra dimension in. And it's funny, like my, my son is four and I've shown him like breakdance videos and stuff. And he's like a narrow, narrow ISA. I mean, this guy is like a top, like rotationally. And, you know, so you had mentioned, um, you know, your, you know, your son, you're like, oh, glad, glad he got like, you know, his mother's genetics or frame or some frame, like, or something like that. Like my kids had no choice. Me and my wife are both narrow, <laughs> narrow, narrow. And my kids have absolutely no choice in the matter, but. I've shown him breakdance videos and I'm blown away by his like aerial ability. Like in he, in the, he'll just like go on the ground, but this start like spinning around and like, I'm like, you know, based off what you said, I'm like, yeah, you're definitely more of an aerial type person than a ground. So I, I, I'm curious what you think about that in terms of like, like the compressiveness and expansiveness of the frame and then like degrees of freedom. And then also the idea of almost like the thing that popped into my head is like off season training in the sense of like, if I'm a football lineman and I spent my whole season doing compressive things and being a wall then maybe in the off season like i saw i I wish i could remember his name he's a like a fijian or a pacific islander rugby player and this like just super built up dude but then he's like skateboarding and on a half pipe and doing like skateboarder Mm -hmm. things and i'm like what a 
what a great balance. Like if I was in the off season, I was just like, you know, I was just smashing people for a season. And then I, you know, to get out of it, do something that's aerial and rotational. And it's like, and not even gravity related entirely. I, I just, I love that extra dimensionality of it. Yeah. I mean, I think that the hard part right now, like to me, it's always like observing something. And then I like to just talk about it with other people that can have their own spin on it and get a degree of like, hey, does this make sense? You know, like, is this something that that might have some traction to it? Does it hold any water or is this kind of like a garbage thought, you know? And because to me, like, like I, I want to avoid my own my own confirmation bias with anything. And because it's so easy, like once you have an idea that you think is like cool idea, you're like, oh, I hope this catches on. So like I have definitely this built in feeling of like, I hope I'm right about this. thing, but And that's where it's like, well, you know what? Like a lot of times when I've opened my mouth in the past, I've gotten feedback that's like, no, no, that's that's wrong. Like, here's why it's wrong. And so in some ways, like it sucks when you get that, but it's also like, well, okay. Like I learned a tremendous amount as a result of this. And the feedback I got from other people was actually like invaluable on this. So that's like always like my first thought process is like, well, let me, let me just put this out into the world and see whether or not it's rejected or seems to be building its own momentum as a concept. And from there, it's like, okay, well, maybe this does have something to it. Maybe, maybe this is explaining quite a bit from the standpoint of predicting who's going to be good at something based on this common denominator of like, hey, if it is ground, like a barbell is tremendous grounding. You know, another 300-pound dude that's trying to go in the opposite direction from you is a grounding force versus these other things. It's like, like clay court tennis is pretty low ground, but when you're in the air spinning around on a skateboard, there's basically no ground. There's no feedback, but you're still required to like have a very high level of awareness of where your body is in space, where your parts are relative to each other with, with basically no feedback. I mean, you have the feedback of your own somatosensory cortex interpreting feelings of your skin and your internal proprioceptive organs and things like that. But other than that, there's, there's nothing and you have to be able to move and contort. And so, okay. It's like, all right, that's like sort of like, okay, if it is a thing and it is this, this element that is the primary factor that differentiates between these different categories of athletes. Now, what will we do with that information? You know, is it wise to, you know, spend as much time as possible with high ground athletes doing high ground specific training, or do they need to get away from it? Almost like, you know, looking at like common injuries in a sport and it's like, well, you know, these shot putters are doing this motion over and over again. Maybe they should do some pulling exercises too, because it's going to train some of the antagonists of the prime movers of the, of the sporting event itself, you know, that could be helpful from an injury management standpoint and from a preventative approach towards training. So I just think of it as, is like, is too much 
compression or high ground activity, is it like taking a hammer to yourself and like you only have so many whacks with that thing before you start hemorrhaging and it's a good idea to do the opposite? Or is it just like this is the singular pathway towards greatness? And the more that you can go down this road, the more specific development you're going to have to reach your peak levels. And, and like a lot of things, the, the answer might be somewhere in the middle of like dip a foot in the water, take the foot out of the water and progressively probably approach it from the perspective of what's working for this individual at this particular stage of their career, you know? Is it that they they need to learn and get better at the specificity? Or is it that the specificity is killing them? Is it that they're at the end of their career and this is this last gasp effort and we're going to go for it all in and just roll the specificity dice as far as we can for this one last shot for peak greatness? I think it's a really contextual situation on that front that's super individual. Yeah, it, you know, one of the things I think about too, it's, uh, I think that ground contact time is a rudimentary measure or a thing you can quantify that would say, you know, what, what type of training should I be doing? Like if a, you know, a football lineman or a, or a shot putter in whatever impulse, the time for impulse for them is longer than like, you know, a long jump takeoff or something. If we want to like look at like impulses, how long are you on the ground for what you're doing, et cetera, et cetera. And we use that to kind of, as a marker to say, all right, well, how many plyometrics are in the program? Should we do more sprints? Are we doing more fast, quick things? Are we doing more lifting? And I mean, it's interesting that uh, like in youth development, you know, with like you watch Jeremy Frisch's videos and he's got kids jumping off of trampolines and doing flips in the air. And when I first started the, the gym, I contract out of the gym owner showed me a video. Uh, his son was a senior on the high school football team and a really good running back like like all area like is playing d1 in college now and this kid the running back did a back handspring and a backflip in the air on the beach and i was like that's amazing like that's like it's an aerial thing it, it's and you know i was like well again he doesn't do that necessarily in a sport but he's also extremely shifty extremely good at evading people like it's not like he's a lineman running into people <laughs> and the more I, I watch, um, even with uh, in coaching youth soccer, it's interesting what the abilities that you watch kids that have, like the wired kids. And, and honestly, most of the kids who are pretty good athletes, I'll have them warm up and I'll say, all right, you're going to be a bear and they're a bear and they you know, do their bear crawl and, or I'll be a crab. What does it mean to be a crab? You have different, you know, people acting different versions of the crab. <laughs> and then I'll say, yeah, let's see your cartwheels. Can you, who can do a cartwheel? And I'll tell you, the kids who are the best athletes at that age, and honestly, even even later on, like they can do cartwheels. They can control their body in the air. You know, I'm sure if I said, all right, we're going to do squat, I would never do this, but all right, we're going to get a kettlebone. Who can do the heaviest goblet squat or something? <laughs> that would not correlate nearly as well. If Ooh. Who can do a cartwheel? Who can control themselves in the air in soccer? You know, versus, I don't know if the sport was different, maybe the... You know, the the making your kids do a goblet squat to see how much they could lift might have more to do with it, but not that I would do that. Anyways, I just thought those that that's it's it almost takes like the ground contact time and compression expansion even further, which I think is important because, yeah, in the air is important. And it's also hard to quantify. I think it wouldn't come naturally to coaches because like oh, I just did a flip. OK, like how many how much force did you put in the ground? Right. Harder to quantify. Yeah. Look, I, I again, I'm worried about my own bias 
But I do think that this concept of ground and ground interaction is a big deal. And again, like in, in, in a lot of ways, like the original model I created was basically saying that the more competent of a mover you are, it means that you're able to hold control of your body as ground is reduced and that the best movers on earth would be the people that can do it with ground, but then without ground, you know? And, um, I just didn't, I didn't understand the, the, the end points of kind of what I was getting at. I don't think at the time, you know, but I, I do see it as, as something along the lines of what you're talking about. Look, like, I, I think that at a young age, you, you don't want to spe- be specific with kids. It's like, you, you just, are you a good athlete? You know what I mean? And a good athlete could potentially do almost anything. And, but at a certain point, you make a choice of where you want to go with it. And at that point, you become more specific. And at that point, you probably realize, like, well, this could be a high ground sport this kid needs to, to participate in. And if I look at the best, like, and, and even like a, a, an example, like a running back, I think that there's different superpowers that guys can bring to the table where you might have a guy like a Marshawn Lynch that would be like more of a, a high ground running back. He's just looking for contact and collision and like physically going to run you over versus a Gale Sayers where it's like, you're never going to touch me like a Barry Sanders where it's like the elusiveness is so beyond belief that like, that's the superpower, not running people over, not Derrick Henry. But if you kind of gain a sense of like where, if you are given a gifted individual and you can envision what trajectory they're going to go down, feeding them the elements that could encourage that superpower could be super helpful. I look at it from personal training as well. Like I, I am kind of, I, I have my own bias and maybe it's just from being in, in a major metropolitan area of training people. And like, look, like I think the people that dominate major metropolitan areas financially are probably people that most of the time tended to not be that good in sports as kids. You know what I mean? Like they became hyper over compensatory intellectual types whether that be like from a tech perspective, coding or whatever the hell it just, it, to me, I was like, wow, I'm caught in this weird, like karma scape of like, I, I, you know, the kid that was the last pick in gym class, like I'm perpetually training this person over and over again. Like their motor competency is so low. Like, I don't know how I'm destined. Like I used to throw balls at this kid's head in dodgeball. And now like I have to spend hours with them over and over again. And, and like, they can't do anything right. Like they can't do anything right. They can't even do like a plank, right? Like, what do you do with this person? So I had to try to problem solve for them. And basically I problem solved by creating a concept that just was like feed more ground to the exercise. And the person has a higher probability of doing it right based on these things that I believe would be associated with doing it right. And then if they can do it right and have some sort of a memory of what it should feel like and where their body should be in space, now I can strip these things away progressively and maybe they can continue to do it right with less of these elements. And like almost, you know, they have their a priori correct memory 
And then they can unfold that memory in different circumstances. But in, in looking at, at people that go for personal training, their goals are typically more aesthetic, you know, build some muscle, lose some body fat. So to me, it, it was kind of like, well, the higher ground, easier to learn exercises also seem to be the ones that would be probably really good choices for driving a hypertrophy stimulus, you know? So they have their additional benefit there, but they like, if I need muscular development for whatever athlete group I'm working with, let's say it's defensive linemen or linebackers or just people that need body armor and mass to like run other people over. And I identify that this gifted 15 year old athlete seems to be going in that trajectory. And there's like, there's probably good examples of linebackers and defensive linemen who actually are great because of their elusiveness and their ability to bend and to make like, uh, you know, elaborate sprawling tackles and things like that. And if that's the case, then I might have to feed that individual lower ground activities to allow them to be able to continue to possess that capability. But on the other side, it might just be like this human battering ram. And if I can accentuate that, then I might feed them more of the higher ground activities. Quickly, I wanted to let you know about the chance to try out performance herbalism for only a few dollars shipping costs and get one of Lost Empire Herbs' flagship products, Pine Pollen, for free. Switching to an herbal emphasis in my supplementation has been a life-changing switch for me. Just as nature is by design balanced and sustainable, I believe that the more natural our diet and our supplementation is, the better. I love and use several Lost Empire Herbs products that boost not only my energy, but also my strength. These include Chiliagit Resin and the Phoenix Formula. You can check those out by heading to lostempireherbs.com slash justfly and grab 15% off. If you're on the fence about the power of herbalism, I have a great offer for you, which is that you can get free. You do pay a few dollars shipping, but you can get free pine pollen. Pine pollen is an herbal powerhouse that is a hormonal and energy booster packed with nutrition. It's actually part of the Phoenix formula. And you can get that for free along with the normal shipping fee at justflypinepollen.com. All right, let's get back to the show. Yeah, it's interesting to think about that, like, yeah, feeding somebody what you need if you're, if you're missing that in your sport. I also think about, yeah, like if somebody is just purely, purely aerial in their strategy, but they need more ground. But I also wonder, I wonder how well those two things can exist together in the sense of, I think the more compressed you get over time, your, your abilities in the aerial can diminish. And the, the, the thing that has been, this has been my conundrum, Pat, like the last two or three years, probably three years. When I was 18, I'm 38 now, when I was 18, I tr- just decided to learn breakdancing, basically. Not amazingly well, but I could do like the windmill moves and the, the one of the better moves I could do. And without, I don't remember needing to practice a lot to get this either, was it's called a single leg swipe. And it's just, it's pretty aerial. We'll just leave it at that. I can put it in the show notes, but it's like, basically you put your two hands on the ground and you you have a series of single leg contacts and a lot of it is aerial and twisting. And like, I went back like three years ago, I'm like, I want to learn that move again. Couldn't do it. Couldn't even come close. Not even close. And the one of the biggest differences between now and then outside of me being 15, 20 years older is just a lot more compression on my frame and, and training almost 100%. Like 
like like terrestrial you know and and so i'm just like is it because of that like do i have to undo that could i be great at both because when i was 18 i mean i still lifted i did i've been lifting you know screwed around with lifting since i was 11 or 12 and then eventually started taking the lifting classes i was not weak i could put up some decent numbers even at that point i just hadn't been doing it for that long and well funny enough too a lot of the break dancing like the this turtle move where you're like kind of jumping around your hands i think helped my triceps and my bench press but beside the point um I just think about can those exist at once? And the last thing I'll say with this is it's almost like aerial athletes are good at aerial things in the sense of I watch like athletes who are really good at dunking, like you know, dunking is almost its own sport now. And a lot of those mm-hmm. athletes can also do back handsprings and backflips and backflips are part of the dunks now and cartwheels are part of the dunks now. It's almost like aerial land, but it's also a quick, a quick off the ground type vibe. And so I think um, it, it's just interesting to start to that categorization does bring to light a lot of interesting ideas. And it's also fun to train that once you're good at it. If you're not good at it, I mean, I've got so frustrated I can't do this move anymore. I'm probably going to go practice it today, to be honest, <laughs> uh, quite a bit after this talk. And I want to get it. It's been really irritating me. So anyways, I, I just find that interesting to think, can, can you have both? And as you get more compressed with that by nature, maybe make you a little bit worse with some of the aerial things. Oh, I think it definitely would. I can't imagine. Like, I'm so bad at twisting at this point and turning and like folding and tumbling I get to, I don't even want to imagine doing it. It like almost hurts me to think about doing some of that stuff. But I, you know, for me and like my, my exercise goals and things like that, they're not in line with low ground activities, you know? So it's kind of like, I, I, I would rather maximize one trajectory and see how far I can take something rather than be good at a lot of things. That's just me. You know, and I can recognize like I don't need to impose that on other people. And um, but it's it's also like if somebody gives me a goal, like if somebody gave me a goal, like they came in for personal training, they're like, you know, I just I really want to put on a lot of muscle mass and get jacked and lean at the same time. It's like, well, okay, like I I just I'm gonna be straight with you. What you're asking for is going to cause some changes in your body, like for sure. And like, you might lose other capabilities if we really push this, like your life in some ways will suck more from the perspective of what we're going to do with food and what we're going to do with training. And, um, you know, I want to just let you know that because I, you know, can you picture like, even like guys that would step out for like a huge bodybuilding show? Like, imagine them trying to, like, you know, do some kind of impressive trampoline display, jumping up and like, you're just like, this is not going to go well. Like, this is even if even if some of those guys might be maybe a couple of those guys. I've seen a few athletic bodybuilders. I'm sure that's not the norm by any means. Yeah. But even if they are, it's almost like, oh, I didn't expect it to be that good, but it's still not that good like it's never going to be confused with the guys that are really good with that you know it's it might it's it's almost like wow that that donkey's really fast but it's not going to be able to run with a racehorse or something like that um versus at the same time like i mean whoever it is that's going to win the gold medal for the x games and the skateboarding half pipe or big air if i made that guy play left guard in a d1 school for football they'd get killed immediately you know what I mean? They'd literally just get thrown around like a rag doll. And so it's kind of like 
at a certain point, like that, which is going to make you really good. Cause I always look at the extremes of things like, you know, whoever the, and look like the best left guard in football is probably Quentin Nelson for the Colts. And he's pretty damn mobile. You know what I mean? Like whatever you want to use to just like, he's got large range of motion for his arms and his legs. So he's maintained some degree of being able to display expansion, but that dude's going to run you over. You know what I mean? He's probably 330 pounds, moves fast, has enough capabilities, but you're not going to confuse him with an Olympic high diver or a, an aerial gymnast or a skateboarder or a snowboarder. He'd still be awful at those things if he tried to bring those things to the highest degree he possibly could. But if you took any of those guys and lined them up against him in a one-on-one pushing match, I mean, it's going to be like, I fear for those people. So it's, it's kind of like at those extremes, you probably still, you know, display some of the qualities on the other side of the spectrum, but you're, you, you, have this gigantic spotlight on the other major dominating pole. Yeah. I think with you know, what you said about general fitness is interesting. Cause I think that my, my, this is just, I guess maybe a theory, uh, although I, I know there is, there's certain emotions associated with certain like physical like movements. I think it was McGonagall's research out of Stanford. It's like, you know, strength is confidence, running is freedom and whatnot. And I think, I think in jumping and getting in the air, there's a sense of freedom too. You know, I think that's a, um, you know, like people like, like dunking, I think for more than just slamming the ball through a ring, I think there's like this, this thing about being in the air. Um, I, I, I couldn't, I could imagine, like you said, like some of these people, you have to progress them into more of an aerial, you know, again, not that I guess, yeah, and I don't work with too many just gen pop people, but I, I can't imagine anyone's goal is like, yeah, I want to do cartwheels. Like, you know, it's like, no, I want to look good and, you know, feel good. Um, but I, I would imagine like a goal really be though to make people at least more functional in, in somewhat aerial positions. Like, can you stand on one leg? You know, can you, can you, you know, even like just doing box jumps or things like that? I, I feel like, you know, even in like CrossFit type situations, probably the most aerial you get, it'd be like a handstand walk or something like that. Maybe there's more, but. It's it's interesting to think of that with the yeah, gen pop versus athletics, but I, I do feel like there's yeah. at least some aerial component that even a gen pop could benefit from on some level. You know, from the standpoint of whatever boring is or inability to tolerate repetitive specificity, you know, I, I always look at personal training as like, you know, generally 90% of the people you're going to, I did have one guy that basically was like, my goals are to be able to do acrobatic movements. And I was like, I, I don't know how to teach you these things. Like, I, I don't know how to teach you how to do a backflip or like, you know, uh, he wanted to do something with like the, the ribbon thing, like ribbon acrobatics. Uh, yeah, aerial like, something, yeah. Yeah, I was like, I, I don't know how to do that. Like, you should find someone that knows how to do that stuff. Like, I... He's like, well, what if I pay you to learn how to do that? And then he coached me. I was like, <laughs> I think a lot of people would pay you to learn how to do that one, Pat. I'm just kidding. Yeah, <laughs> it, that would be. I was like, honestly, like, I was like, I, I don't know how much you're planning on paying me to learn how to do this, but like, why wouldn't you just work with someone that already knows how to do this? That's been coaching people in this. Like, my advice for you is to work with somebody else. But um, I was like, if you want to build muscle tissue or like become more aerobically fit or if you wanted to even develop some other athletic qualities like I, i'm a perfectly 
good person to work with, but you're asking me to, to teach you something I don't even know how to do, let alone teach it. So, you know, this is a bad fit, but, but for the most part, it, it is usually body composition that's in personal training. And so it is kind of like, to me, I'm like, well, in truth, like if you wanted to maximize body composition related stuff, it's basically bodybuilding. And, but like, are you going to be able to handle how shitty a bodybuilding lifestyle is? Absolutely not. Because it's like, it's very, it's a disciplined, like almost like monk-like approach to life in some ways, fucked up monk, but still like, you know, so I always look at it like, well, you're going to be a bad bodybuilder and I'm going to make your training primarily go in that direction. And that's like the main ingredients of a dish. But a dish is bland without seasoning and some salt and pepper and things like that. But I also don't want to overwhelm the dish by making it too salty or over seasoning it. So like having the right balance of things like throwing a med ball or doing some running or doing some jumping is like to me the seasoning in the body composition, personal training world. And it's, it's like, well, how much of this, how spicy does this person kind of need their dish to be? And I'm sort of like reading the person on that front. And um, I also kind of look at the, the loaded exercise selection these days as being like, well, from a psychological perspective, how high or low ground do I need to make the exercises for this person? so that it connects with whatever conception they have of typical fitness jargony words like functional or whatever. Because I, I, I would just say that whatever people would define functional, like functional training to me actually just means a bias towards low ground exercise selection from a, from a resistance training standpoint. Like a low ground lower body resistance training exercise to me would be like a rear foot elevated in a TRX suspension cable split squat mm, yeah, versus a, a very high ground lower body exercise would be a leg press. And a, in my mind, someone that's a functional training person would be like, well, the TRX is more functional. And I'm like, well, I, I, I don't, I don't think functional is the right word, yeah. but there's definitely a difference in these exercises. And to me, it's just like the degree of ground now defines that difference. And for, I, I think that the lower ground choice would be less hypertrophy specific stimulus and a worse choice there. But I think psychologically, some people trend towards lower ground movement better. And that might be what satisfies whatever conscious or subconscious psychological components ride along with that person. Yeah, that's that's interesting you brought. It's, it's a great segue, too, into the single leg training stuff. I'm glad you brought up the TRX because, yeah, we would just think, yeah, it, yeah, people say, oh, what's more functional? Well, why is it more functional? Functional for what? You know, like, well, yeah, if you're an air and, you know, it's interesting. I, I think about that. Like, I've, I found that when I first got exposed to, uh, it was the book Probot X by Edith Hoist and Marv Marinovich, and it was a lot of really higher ground training methods because it was on like PVC pipes and balance discs and 
there was balance balls involved. And in reality, I think that just it just is something that isn't pulling you into the ground as much or you're higher or you're literally higher off the ground. If you're on a PVC pipe or a like a sports science lab balance disc with like almost a little like a baseball basically in the bottom of it on a stick, like yeah. you are you are in the air more. And right. people who are more aerial athletes will just be better at that. I, you know, it's funny. I, I guess I, I hadn't thought about it with that like taxonomy in mind. But all the people in the gym who get on the balance discs, like I kill it because I'm a pretty aerial athlete. Like I was a high jumper and I can't do the single leg swipe anymore. But, you know, I can stand on something elevated with no weight on me and be really good. And then people who are really good at lifting but are more ground oriented athletes, they just don't do that well. And it's, um, yeah, it's, it's interesting to put that frame on it as well versus just saying, well, it's more functional. Well, I mean. Yeah, there is a level of function for, towards aerality, if that's a word, is that a word <laughs> that exists with that? Yeah, like you said, but that's so cool to, to also have that, that in mind is a better, just a better way of classifying these things, a, a more yeah. concrete way of saying this is what this, this is something, this is working. Well, it, it was, you know, those kinds of, it just drove me crazy for a long time, like, kind of like, well, why, like, you know, I, I do look at time as the ultimate vetting process and like people have been doing unstable labile surface training for a while now. And it hasn't been like thrown out and dismissed and people still like it. And like other people bitch about it incessantly. (laughs) And, and it's like, well, it's not going anywhere. Like, what is it about this stuff? And, and to me, it's like, like this ground concept sort of emerged and it helped explain it to me where it's like, it's a more, it is ground, but it's, it's, more deformable ground which decreases the amount of ground that it actually presents Mm -hmm. it's certainly you know less deformable than the air but the air is still a medium you know water is a medium water is super deformable it's less deformable than air but it's all a spectrum of deformability their deformation capability. I don't know what the right word is there, but like, yeah, we've invented a couple, a couple. Yeah. Irreality. I don't even know what the hell I just said, but yeah, it's like, I, I, I just think like, uh, and, and then just sort of identifying like who's probably going to be better at this. And it's like, cause like the other thing that drove me crazy was this notion. And it's not a notion. It's research supported that, balance challenges don't carry over to one another you know like mm-hmm. just because you learned how to surf doesn't mean you know how to snowboard you know just because you know how to snowboard doesn't mean you know how to skateboard but then there's a guy like sean white who it's like well starts off as a skateboarder i think and then turns into a snowboarder and it's like you know amazing at both of these things but it's kind of like well he's just well set up to be good at both of these things you know, it's 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 kind of like the characteristics that would be associated with being good at one are the same as the other. So he'd still have to learn how to do the other one, but he's probably going to learn how to do it a hell of a lot faster than somebody that's not physically well suited for those tasks. And his ceiling for how far his learning can go is probably much higher compared to someone who is not physically well-suited for those particular kinds of tasks. I hope you're enjoying this podcast with Pat Davidson. There have been several massively transformational processes for me 
that have happened in my last decade as a coach. These include doing this podcast, learning in person from brilliant mentors, and then integrating that knowledge into the programming of the athletes I work with in the collegiate strength and conditioning, track and field sector, and online coaching space. I wanted to create an educational course that highlighted how my programs have transformed in that time period, how athletes have become substantially more robust and explosive in their sport movements, and I wanted to really fuse these ideas, and they almost seem different and, and separate in some ways, but of strength and movement quality. The Elastic Essentials course, which is the result of this, features over 10 hours of instruction as well as two hours of bonus interviews, and it'll get you CEUs for major certifying organizations. To check out that course, head to JustFlySports.com, and there will be a bright banner on the right where you can click on Elastic Essentials and check that out. You can read reviews from coaches who have taken it. You can see results from athletes I've coached who have benefited from these training methods. Coaches are saying this is the best money they've ever spent on continuing education. They're saying they'd easily spend over twice the amount the course is listed at. I feel so strongly about the value of it that there's a 30-day money-back guarantee that comes with the course. And it's truly been rewarding to put out educational material that benefits coaches and athletes. I hope you consider investing in this powerful learning opportunity. And that being said, let's get back to the show. I think how many, yeah, how much of the aerial stuff you do at a young age is is really important in, in pushing up that ceiling too. And that's where all the having kids do all the flips and tricks and cartwheels and jumping off the playground, you know, jumping off the slide or, you know, like those kind of things. I I just think there's a certain level of that, you know, as Jeremy Frisch has put, that if you don't do it early enough, you, you're never going to really be able to get it like you could if you were doing all that stuff. And, you know, I even think back to my, I never did martial arts, but it was always, I was always trying to do like 360 karate kicks when I was like six or seven, I remember, and trying to do all this aerial stuff. That's just kind of what I did. And it's, um, it, it's, it's interesting to think of that as the base, you know, like that, um, yeah, depending on your sport too. Like, you know, I, that's probably why I wasn't, a, my, my high school didn't have football, but even as a football player and even just, even in it physical and aggressive basketball games compared to guys that were football players, I, I was not nearly as good as they were at that part of the game for sure. You know, that was definitely not my strong point. Yeah. But I could imagine you get out in open space and those guys are going to have a really hard time with dealing with the way that you're going to bend and change and accelerate, decelerate and juke. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's, it is so interesting to think, yeah, and Ben too. That would be my strategy in many cases. You know, be more like a little bit more like water in that in that type of situation. I mean, i i i was I was okay in the post. People my size, I was fine. But people who are strong, who are low center of mass football, it was, that was always a, that was a challenge. I had to work really hard <laughs> for sure. Um, Pat, I do want to take this into you know you with the, yeah. the TRX and, and that. I mean, it's you know everything we talked about. It could be almost its own podcast i'm like oh do you have to get too far to the biomechanics i mean i I love talking biomechanics but just like just talk about that as a new category it's so interesting i you know every athlete you look at you you have that aerial in mind i mean i guarantee my training the next week is going to be way more probably next month more aerial stuff just to get back to my roots but um so single leg training though I, i am i am curious so i mean and maybe you could even say just even just single leg training straight up uh yeah be more aerial than than bilateral training. I mean, maybe that's a good segue into the more biomechanics. definitely is. Think? Like to me, like at least in the, the principles of progression that I created or regression or where to start or whatever the hell you want to call these things. Like I, I, I look at it like, like bilateral symmetrical stance is the most grounded you can be. And then when you go into a front back stance, 
that is less grounded than bilateral symmetrical, but it's it's still more grounded than a lateral stance. I think that once that that the 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 lower load bearing foot is kicked out laterally, that's the most challenging stance that there is. But front back stance, which most single leg exercises are done in, and that could be a single leg squat. And and look like I look at front back stances like. One foot could be forward of the other, like a lunge, or one foot could be more elevated than, than the other, like a step up. But it's to me, it's all front back stance because it's based on cycling through through space, like a wheel in some way, shape, or form, like a bicycle or running. Like it's 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 built on that essential concept. But it's it's overall a less grounded place than two feet on the ground planted next to each other. And um, but then. Inside of that, there's ways that you can make the front back stance more or less grounded. Like I would look at a single leg leg press as being a, a higher ground unilateral exercise compared to a single leg squat. Uh, and like I said, like a rear foot supported in a suspension cable would be a really low ground one. And like, even if I use the rear foot elevated split squat stand, that's more grounded than the TRX uh, because the, the support stand isn't going to deform as much as this strap just moving all over mm-hmm. the place in space. So I, you know, I don't, I haven't taken the time to, you know, have a more exact list of sequencing exercises on that front or, or, or that, but I think, I feel like from the big picture standpoint, the more things that your body is touching and the more that those things don't move and deform in space, the more it's a grounding source. And the less of that, the more ungrounded it is. And generally speaking, you're going to have an easier time learning how to do the higher grounded version. And it would prepare you for being able to do the lower grounded ones properly in the future but at the same time i think you're probably going to get more in the way of hypertrophy adaptation by progressively overloading the higher ground variant uh exercises within those categories like i would just imagine that if somebody like if you took the same person and you put them on you know, a 20 week program of progressive overload with single leg leg press versus rear foot elevated in a TRX suspension cable, I would think that the leg press would probably win from increasing cross-sectional area compared to the TRX rear foot supported one. That would be my guess. I mean, that's where you, you have to measure, but you know, I would, I would feel that way. And I just think that like uh, both of them could be perfectly valid. It's just like, what kind of outcome are you looking for uh, and what sort of, of individual are you working with? Yeah, that's, I tell you that, that categorization I think is just so helpful because otherwise, if you just call something functional, we have all sorts of, you know, biases and connotations that come with that word. Yeah. Most of them negative. Um uh, because like, like you said, if you want more size and even more strength when your feet are flat on the ground, yeah, you want to pick the things that are um, like uh, higher ground. Or that's right. Like higher is more into the ground. I think higher, I think up, but like, 
like more into the ground. <laughs> it might be easier to just call it more ground or less ground. Yeah, my know? brain was my brain kept flip flopping. It's like it's like you're driving. Turn left, people. right, left, right. <laughs> but um, that, I mean, to me, that's so because. I mean, people who I, I've had this conversation recently with with uh, Rick Franz while we were talking about um, wide and narrow ISAs. A lot of strength coaches are a wide ISA. They come from that background. They are a more ground person. That's their that's more of their worldview. And so then, but then what happens when they're training athletes that are less ground? You know, like I I mean I learned a ton in my time at Cal just training the men's tennis team, which is a a less ground sport. And the best athletes there were good at like cartwheels and monkey bars and controlling themselves in space, you know, even devoid. And a lot of that, uh, my progression with them was a big contributing factor to a lot of the stuff that I've put together in what I guess I'd call my training system and my, my, uh, but again, I mean, it's not, sometimes you have a athlete who needs more compression and then you have to give them more of that. But just to get out into more of that, maybe I intuitively found some of the ones that I guess were, were, were less ground-like and I found that to be more effective. Uh, for those people, and and I think a lot of that came from my own personal experience as a high jumper, which is a very low ground thing. You know, you're you have a very quick plan. And I found, I remember I was talking with a strength coach, uh, or not strength coach, a track coach at one of the other schools in the WEAC conference, and he was like, "Did you know that eighty percent of high jumpers that go to college don't jump as high as they did when they were in high school?" And I, I don't know if it's that high, but it is. It it's that is one of the events that people crap out in college a lot, and. Part of the reason why I believe is they play less team sports and then they go in the weight room and they do a lot of compressive things. And it's like, well, what's going to happen to you on the ground and twisting and all this stuff? You know, it it just doesn't fit. And so I think my experiences with that, it does fit with these lower ground to have sports that you can then classify too. Because, yeah, what my, there's a lot of, you know, where my training evolved to with the men's tennis team. If you gave that to a football lineman, which I'm training a football lineman now, which is great. You know, would that work well for them? Probably not, you know, maybe a little bit here and there, but you know, it's just, yeah, to be able to make that, that distinction, I think is really important. I I really look at it like that's the next, I I think it's the next project I'm going to work on. Like if I'm looking at like, what's the next book I'm going to write? Like I'm planning on it just being training trajectories Yeah. and those trajectories being based on that concept. Yeah, you said um, with that split squat um, too, or sorry, the 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 split squat. You said it was the the when the foot's out laterally was the least ground there. Like if it's just like a slider, you know, a valve slide, like yeah. like split, and the the one of the legs goes out laterally. You said that was the least ground uh, in your opinion of the single leg variations. Yeah, and I think it's very important to emphasize. That's my opinion. You know, like I just see that as like maybe it's because when I see that stance, it's like. I think it's usually reserved for things like ice skating, mm-hmm. like really high in ice skating. And, and like, just think like that's lower ground in, you know, you're, you're standing on butter knives on top of uh, ice. Yeah. Like yeah. it's kind of crazy to think about, but, um, and that, and it literally might just only be the result of the fact that the ice skate basically takes away a lot of ankle and toe motion so that you have to do that kind of a, presentation of of you know like biasing abduction in the expansion presentation of late stance as opposed to biasing maybe like you know plantar flexion or something along those lines um you know i I think that all and i do know that we were going to talk some about like er ir and like 
you know, even like Goda concepts and things like that. And, and mid stance and like when you might see a lot of pronation, I just look at it like they're all just, you know, variations of the same general concept that like based on your structural specifics, you might feature a little bit more of one observable anatomical motion. Let's say it's pronation as opposed to, you know, seeing uh, IR, you know, it's just that that's like the, that's the path of least resistance for this person's physical makeup. And so you just, or they're lacking, you know, to a great degree, one of the other motions that should ride along. So you see extra excess, uh, probably a degree of overcompensatory in one motion because the other motions aren't available. Kind of like with ice skating, because you literally can't bend your big toe with ice skating. So you're never going to get into like a push off through your toe going into that position and, and finishing late stance there. You have to have this super excessive abduction just based on the changed constraints of a boot and a blade. Yeah, it's all um, in those boots. It's all like a Darien Bar. It's, it's a class one lever where the ankle's locked. You don't get to the ball. The foot is the fulcrum point because well, then you'd be on that front wheel and you'd fall on your face. You know, uh, right. but I, yeah. but even with the high, the high, um, the less ground thing in the skating. I mean, I, I, I was on, I was on uh, Mike Robertson's podcast. We were talking about how I'd, my wife bought me rollerblades for my last birthday, and I was like loving it. And I was feeling, and, and in doing that, I used to skate a lot in high school. And again, another, another low ground thing. Right. And like my feet and mm. my feet and ankles actually felt like really good, like coming out of those. Not obviously, but it was a little bit messed up with the big toe, but just from a responsive reactivity type perspective, feet, feet felt pretty good. And like you said earlier, it's about kind of dealing with just smaller points of pressure in a way. Like you, you, as you get up higher, you kind of have these smaller, it's like being on balance discs. Like you have smaller little pressure points that your body has to find and sense and deal with. And a lot of that is like reactive athleticism, like like juking people out in the field or or like bouncing, you know, setting up to dunk and jump off the ground. You have to like really get into these smaller points of pressure uh, relative to just being like low, you know, bilateral squat, really like almost letting the feet spread out, I guess. Not that they necessarily do that, but it's it's just a little bit different. I think you have to start dealing with smaller pressure points too. And you feel that in the boot. You feel where the pressure goes in the boot. You know, it's not your toe, but it's like your foot, foot is kind of, um, the the center of mass in your foot is swerving around between small pressure points quickly. I guess that's the best way I can put it versus just standing on the ground. I mean, I notice it just with like, I'm doing a lot of track training right now and there's only so much you can wear your spikes for mm-hmm. like, yeah, higher ground. Like, yeah. Less ground when you have those on. Yeah. It's like, yeah, it's and I'm like desperate to get out of them at a certain point because it's like, oh, like the points of my feet that, that, that get abused with them. I'm like, oh my God, I can't wait to put my sneakers on to do some like marching and skipping. Like, oh, this feels so good to be in a different shoe. And, um, and, and it's just like, there's so much feedback from your feet. And I think that coaching from the feet like I, I just look at like if from a coaching perspective, there's some areas of the body that are smart to coach from. And they're probably just like if you were to just map someone's sensory homunculus, like the higher homunculus areas are probably smarter places to coach somebody at. So like 
giving them a chance like hey what are you doing with your hands what are you doing with your feet like those are better places to focus on and they're probably better places to like give people um either like a reference through you know like here hold this or let's put on some different shoes or use a different orthotic or a wedge or whatever because when I influence those things, like they have such a global impact as well on, Hey, what's happening at the humerus and what's happening at the scap. And then what's happening at the tibia, the ankle, the femur, the pelvis, like it, it causes these massive chain reactions. And it's like, do I really want to like coach someone at their ASIS or something like that? It's like a, such a, a low sensory <laughs> region from a movement perspective. Like it's, you know, if I'm trying to get somebody to pivot and launch something, I might do a much better job of talking to them about their calcaneus or their ball of their foot or their big toe, as opposed to being like, I really want you to feel your hips, you know, like, like how much can I feel these things? And like, if I just get onto a certain part of my foot, my hips will probably respond as they have to, you know? So, um, I always think of that, like when you uh, change foot things, like you probably influencing the global movement system quite a bit and feeding that some like anything different or variable can oftentimes just feel so good, you know, like just from the standpoint of, of getting a break from really kind of the monotony or repetitiveness that like just so many things that can just drive monotony and repetitiveness and usually good feelings come from breaking monotony yeah i the track spike thing uh, that's i don't have a back when i was at cal i could just walk out into the track and put spikes on and sprint and after i hadn't been on the track and spikes in a while uh maybe it might have been like a four-year hiatus i got the spikes out put them back on i was like my feet feel so alive doing this. This is amazing. Mm-hmm. It's a small change. Like uh, people are often looking for these big, like global, what's this crazy new exercise that I can do? And, and it's like, well, how about just go sprint and track spikes for a little bit? Like that's, yeah. that'll, that'll help you out a lot. I love to like, yeah, the, the homunculus man, like the sensory load in the hands and feet. And it's like, yeah, like who's going to say, all right, well, when you do this, uh, squatter sprint, like I want you to think about your left anominate and I want you to, it's like, yeah, <laughs> I mean, that's why people, I think, sometimes put their hands on those areas to give them more. Like I've seen swim- sure. swimmers who a lot of times would be doing medicine ball throws and they would like almost subconsciously just put their hand on their ribs or, you know, their core, somewhere in their abdomen or something like that to give more feedback. But yeah, you definitely, it's it's really hard to to coach top down. I know there's like, there's influences top down that influence the feet, but coaching them, especially actively is a little bit more difficult. Mm-hmm. would you say so kind of maybe to close this out because i think i want to keep everything under the scope of this this um, this umbrella um just because it's yeah. so fascinating to me and you know we we're going to talk about a little bit about mid stance and single leg squatting just because i think it's interesting a lot of people yeah. you know like they'll miss mid stance they're like they hit early they hit their heel and then the forest always kind of goes laterally around and then into the you know the, the balls of the feet or whatever on the exit point and yeah for quick ground contact stuff i and super springy stuff, I think that could work, um, you know, depending on a few factors. But then you, know, you want a dynamic arch, too. You want an arch that can flatten, and, and you want to be able to pronate, and you don't want 
And you don't want people to get imbalanced either. I think when people are always doing that mechanism and they can't get the arch down, they don't hit mid stance anything, I think that can open the, the door to um, some overuse type things. Um, but you're cur- I'd be curious what you think about that um, like mid stance and early stance and late stance in light of the, the more or less gravity. And then um, that maybe we can get into thoughts on training that as well. Yeah, I mean, look, like I, I, I just think it's almost comical to demonize mid stance, which I feel like is like a weird thing that might be happening right now, kind of driven through some Gota stuff um, of, uh, you know, like the, this whole idea of like never having inside ankle bone low as they, you know, they're always inside ankle bone high. And it's like, look, like you can... And it's just, it's kind of funny to me that their whole name is based on talking about the best athletes in any respective area. And then like, there's plenty of examples. You can find video like world record holders that like dump, dump through their inside part of their foot and like watch Tiger Woods hit a golf ball, man, like on a drive, like he's going to pronate and evert hard on that right foot. And it's, it why because it's your gas pedal like mid stance is your gas pedal it is the peak of it is compression it is your force production and there's probably different presentations of it that under certain circumstances or context or desired task completion like there's different ways that it can manifest and in particular like i i look at golf or something like that, where you're trying to lateralize the pelvis through space as like, you really need to feature strong eversion and pronation Mm -hmm. of the back foot. That's the thing that's going to kind of unlock you to be able to actually lateralize your pelvis, uh, in particular to dissociate the pelvis lateralizing and keeping your head back over the back foot which is so important for sports where you're trying to hit objects with, with clubs and bats and, and sticks, you know, that, that is a, a very, and you can look at it from the beginnings of golf, like Byron Nelson, Ben Hogan, uh, all the Jack Nicholas, uh, Tom Watson, all these guys, like the best of that, of that sport, they're able to feature that, that inside, edge of the foot finding the ground and there there you'll you'll see some pretty incredible presentations of that and if you if you listen to great golf coaches they'll have drills where they'll really feature having their like when someone can't do it they'll exaggerate that like crazy and they'll exaggerate the pelvis moving laterally while the person's able to keep their thorax and cranium back now they don't use the anatomical terms they just know like Look, man, like uh, Rory, uh, Rory McIlroy has pretty much a perfect golf swing. And if you want your swing to look like that, we have to get your foot to start doing this. Mm-hmm. And we have to start getting your pelvis to start doing this. And the person that they're putting into these positions, they'll be like, oh, my God, it's so uncomfortable. Like, I feel such a nasty stretch in these different places. And they're like, yeah, well, you know, just we got to have you spend time. And then, like, as you swing. Like, we're just going to have you do it free and it won't be as extreme, but like, that's just a sport where it's like, to me, golf is so interesting because it's the ultimate turn of all the turns that you can do in sports. 
the golf swing is the ultimate turn of wind up impact and follow through. And it has to be perfect and it has to be incredibly forceful at high velocity because it's all about launching this object as far as you can through space, but you're doing it purely laterally. You know what I mean? Like it's, it's such a non straight ahead sport. Like it's purely lateral from the way that it works. Like how quickly can you, lateralize the segments of your axial skeleton and then feature your appendicular skeleton trailing that like a whip and then the whole thing turns like it's turning and lateralizing the axial skeleton and having the appendicular skeleton whip through after that and that's going to kind of determine like how far it's going to go and how consistent it's going to go in the same pathway and direction so it's it's an incredible motion to actually like analyze and the coaches in that area are so detail oriented and specific and and if it's like if the movement isn't precise at almost every segment it's going to be a disaster like the ball is going to slice it's going to hook it's going to not have the right height to the to to your wedges or it's not going to have the right launch angle to a driver. Like there's, I mean, and, and what I like about the sport now is they have like the track man technology and they can, they can quantify the outcome of what's happening with the ball. And when you're able to match what's happening with the body appropriately, you're going to see the quantitative ball analysis metrics correspond to that appropriately. So it's, it's just a cool thing to look at. But it's also like it's a very it's a very specific lateral task that features this exaggeration of kind of the lateral movement of the foot and the ankle complex to be done right. That won't be exactly the same for something that would be straight ahead or diagonal or whatever. So I I just think like to me, there's it's like the notion of expansion or compression and and to me you know expansion is still based on like absorbing and it's a downhill process and compression is producing and it's an uphill process and um and to me that like that those are the most important concepts because i look at those concepts as like going to every level and, and in particular like micro levels of like even the way that molecular movement happens at a cellular level of like pumping sodium ions or letting sodium ions flow down a concentration gradient. Like there's uphill and downhill processes when you get to the molecular level of science from a movement standpoint. And then like the same concept just carries over to macro presentation of like a human trying to overcome or yielding or uphill, downhill or whatever, whatever terms you want to apply to it. But it's, it's like, what's the context of trying to go uphill or downhill? And based on those contexts, like the stereotypical joint actions that are uphill, which would be pronation, dorsiflexion, extension, adduction, internal rotation, you might see a little bit more of one of those or a couple of those be more exaggerated under certain circumstances. 
and the flip side also being true for the expansion qualities, just based on task, you know, like, are you trying to run forward and jump high like a dunk? Because I, I mean, I've seen the way that you break that down. And like the person needs to have this big plantar flexion moment or, or angle at the ankle. Like they need this big step prior to that vertical projection. It's exaggerated compared to a different kind of projection. Um, you know, so it's it's always like a, an appreciation of these are, are the different presentations of the same concept that might need to be exaggerated towards this version of it, depending upon the actual uh, intricacies of this particular iteration. Um, and when you are lacking uh, one of those methods of pre presenting the concept, that's where it could be a problem if you have a high variability sport. You know, or if the person has an overuse injury and they only have this one option of presenting this concept, it might wear that that particular tissue out if if that's the only way you can do it. Yeah, one of the first things that Adarian borrowed, one of the first things I ever remember learning from him was like the pronation uh, or really it just I, I think he had mentioned this in another context with joints, but pronation gives me more options. It buys me time. It buys me time to do things. And especially, um, he had posted, it was a rear, um, from the rear view, Mondo Duplantis, who just set the world record pole vault again. <laughs> He's broken it like five times or six times. But it was his second to last or penultimate step going into his takeoff. And his foot was so, it was so crazily, crazily, it was crazy pronated. He was using all the movement options in that foot to get him to that final step. And that's the thing too, is sometimes like variable takeoffs, you know, when you all the, always the, it's not like any pole vault run or anything, you know, high jump or basketball layup, you, you don't have your steps 100% planned out. You need to have some, some options to drop your center of mass and you need to be able to use those options. And you know, even, even options aside too, you had said it's the gas pedal. That's something I've been thinking about lately is in watching people, I'd be curious to your take on this, people who have a hard time um tra transitioning to four foot rocker so basically like, they're doing a vertical jump and they're dropping down and they go to jump and their heels just kind of stay glued on the ground for too long and they end up just kind of using quad power you know to get off the ground versus springy athletes can get to the four foot well like at, once they start to propel back upwards they can get the heel off the ground transition to the four foot and i noticed that people who have calcaneus bones that don't evert well you know, basically, which I would link to, you can't, they don't really get to that mid, they don't really leverage mid stance in that transition out of the bottom from the drop to the way up. They just don't seem to really get into the ball of the foot well. It's like they didn't get mid stance well, so now they didn't get to the ball of the foot well, and then their heel just stays on the ground. And um, even in sprint acceleration too, when you're in kind of this compressed position, but I feel like that's where that mid stance shines as well. Like that little bit of heel bony version to be able to, like you said, propel that gas pedal. I feel like that's a big gas pedal mid stance position versus I think upright running sprinting people can kind of work around a little bit more or like even like a fast RSI hop or something like that. But I'd be curious your take on that, that transition, like mid stance, the role of mid stance yeah. and transitioning to the ball of the foot. You know, I, I think I, I'm reminded, I, I remember attending uh, one of the PRI annual interdisciplinary symposiums and uh, it was on 
like the one of the major concepts of it was motion sickness. All right. And they had a guy who was like the motion sickness expert of the world talk. And it was really cool, you know, and he was talking about seasickness in particular. And I don't know how or like anyways, the discussion somehow segued into talking about the actual movement capabilities of boats. Okay. Mm -hmm. And boats have all these different um I, I don't remember all of them, but boats can rock and they can roll and they yaw and basically like they can kind of tip forward and backwards they can tip side to side they can spin they can slide forward and backwards they can slide laterally and they can do all of them all at the same time you know and they'll present with different features of which one of those motions they're going to do the most depending upon the seas that they find themselves in like what kind of waves are they in is it choppy is it big rolling waves is it super smooth like what's the water like and based on the water the boat it's got all these different capabilities but it'll move in these it'll feature one more than the other and then i think ron started talking and was like riffing off of this boat conversation and was like i hope everybody in here understands that feet are boats Okay. Like if you can understand that a human foot is a boat, it's going to really help you a long way with this stuff. And because I mean, a foot can do all the same motions as a boat. And the weird thing is a lot of the bones are actually like kind of named after boat things like a navicular. And it's like a lot of nautical references get featured with feet. And, um, and to me, like a calcaneus, for instance, is like the rudder of a boat. And it really like when it turns in a direction, the whole body turns the other way. You know, when the calcaneus turns out and you would get pigeon toed, it's the best way to rotate your whole body the other direction. Your mm -hmm. right foot gets pigeon toed and the calcaneus turns out the right side of your body is going to IR and you're going to turn left. Um, and I would, to me, cause I just sort of break movement down into what direction you're trying to turn. You know, are you trying to turn left? You're trying to turn right. And at any point in time, and, you know, I look at sagittal movement as uh, your both sides of the body. You're trying to turn the same way at the same time. And when you try to turn both sides of the body at the same way at the same time, you just squeeze the body and the body like it gets squeezed up or it gets squeezed forward, like a broad jump or a squat. Like, you know, you're doing both turns, it's same direction turn at the same time on both sides and it squeezes and it shoots you in a direction versus when one foot's in front of the other or one foot's out to the side, the two feet will probably behave differently from each other at the same time. And the more that they're mirroring the opposite of the other, the more chiral they are, the more you're able to turn. And um, when you lose the ability for them to be the chiral mirror of each other, you won't turn as well. Um, and the same thing would be true of your hands. And it would probably be true of every other corresponding segment or bone. But feet are easy to see. They're just out there. They're hanging out. Like you can really see if someone's, you know, tail whipping their heel around. 
uh, a lot. And, and, and look, like, I think Goda has done a really good job of noticing what's going on from like a tail whip of a Calpinius yeah. standpoint. I think they, they like really saw that very effectively. And when someone's in heel recovery during a running stride and you see them with a calcaneus turned out, and basically that's going to be an IR tibia and you can't even achieve knee flexion unless your tibia can IR. Like it just doesn't happen well. And, um, and, and you'll see the other foot really doing the exact opposite thing at the same time. Like, cause they're big on like that sort of that foot landing in early stance being in like a supinated position. And it's like, Hey, if I see the back foot in featuring the calcaneus being directed out with an IR tibia, that's a great recovery position. And it's setting me up really well on that forefoot to be in great early stance position to be able to start the foot strike on the next foot. And it's like, it's just a beautiful chiral presentation of what's going on at the lower extremity. But then you still need to have a mid stance presentation on the foot on the ground. I think that you just like to, again, kind of go back to golf. When I, I like listening to, I'm not good at golf. I don't have any intention of playing a ton of golf, but I find golf swing coaches to be so valuable to listen to and to learn from. Um, and the way that they uh, use constraints and references is, is literally like magician level coaching, you know? Um, so one of the things that they, that I usually hear good golf swing coaches talk about is if I set you up properly, the right stuff should just happen. Mm -hmm. You know, if the grip and the stance is right, then the swing should just swing itself. And so I look at this the same way of like, if you are in a really good early stance preparatory place, and you have the, the, the other swing leg in a really great recovery place, then the mid stance will probably just happen beautifully. And if either of the other, if, if, those, if the preparatory stuff isn't in place really good, your mid stance is not set up to just unfold really well. And if that's the case, you might witness some things that you might think are overcompensated overcompensatory they might be functioning just fine and they might be a level of compensation that is within the the tissue tolerance capabilities of that athlete to be able to to just continue to train forever but with a, a lesser athlete or someone with lesser tolerance it might wear them out or cause problems but it's there's there's also like 10 million other factors coming in like lifestyle and body weight and fiber type and everything else under the sun. Yeah. Yeah. It is. It is interesting to think about the complex nature of movement. I, I was always fascinated by that kind of that takeaway of the foot as well. Like when, in what situations is the takeaway uh, where the foot would spin external when it would take away from the ground, and at what point would it, you know, spin internal and whip back towards the midline of the body a little bit? And I feel like part of it depends on what you're doing, like a bounding stride, where 
it's almost like you're loading up or the Tibia is trying to ER real hard to resist the ground in that situation. You might get more of an ER takeaway. And then what might set you up for an IR takeaway, like an acceleration phase in sprinting when there's a, a really low center of mass and a lot of rotation too coming out of the upper body. And that, you know, and, and a ton of like external rotation, supination, like strength coming down from the glute, you know, top down coming down from the glute into the foot that whips it, you know, at the, the foot getting whipped from the top, like. There's a lot of stuff to think about. Like I've been fascinated just kind of thinking about that mechanism and I, I'm glad it's in my head now, you know, just to kind of think yeah. about when and how. And um, with the golf coaches too, I'll have to get into that. I, I always love, you know, that's an area that I haven't been thinking about too much. Um, but I, I just don't, I don't train any golfers, but that sounds so fascinating. And I, yeah, I, I'm not great at golf. Uh, I actually can, I could swing pretty well, but I just, the mental consistency kills me <laughs> and the detail, uh, horrible at that. But I, I would love to get into that. Um, Pat, man, I would love to go to, to keep on this. I have so many questions left to ask you, but I think uh, I've, I've reached the, the end of my time limit for t- the day, sadly. Oh, um, oh man, to, yeah, this is, this is cool. Yeah, but I, yeah, thank you again. I know, especially the, just that, that classification system, the, the high gravity, low gravity, or the, with the ground. Just gives me so many things to think about. Always love your your thoughts, uh, the way your mind works. And yeah, appreciate having you on. So thank you so much. Uh, thank you. Thanks so much for tuning in to another show. I appreciate you being here. If you want to help us out with this podcast to help it reach more people who are interested, You can leave us a rating, review on iTunes, Spotify, Stitcher, whatever you're listening to. I would definitely appreciate that. We'll see you all next week.